Hey, everybody. I'm joined by Yancy Strickler. He's, one, he's a co-founder of Kickstarter, uh, author of a book called This Could Be Our Future. Um, and I think we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things around the future and capitalism and how we run companies and a lot of the ideas that Yancy's been um, kind of tackling uh, as of late. Um, so I'm excited to, to kind of hop into this discussion. Yancy, thank you for uh, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, before we kind of dive into the specific questions, I'm curious, can you just give kind of a, a brief recap of you know, how you've gotten to this point and, and yeah, maybe culminating with writing a book. Why, why write a book at all? Um, well, I grew up in, um, in Southwest Virginia, a place called Clover Hollow. It's in the Appalachian mountains. Um, and I grew up there on a farm and, uh, you know, just lived in books, read books a lot, um, was, uh, you know, went to church, went to a Christian school growing up. And, uh, but I always dreamed of, um, the larger, wider world, I think through, just through reading, uh, that really happened. And after graduating high school, um, I went to college also in the state of Virginia, uh, which was fine. And then after graduating, um, I moved to New York city on sort of like a last minute notice invited by a friend. They had an extra room and a house in Coney Island. And I moved to New York with a dream of being a writer. And um, within a couple months, I got a job in New York. This is in 2000. And I got a job as a, as a person writing news that got read out by DJs on the radio. Um, so when a DJ would read a news brief about something that was happening, I would be writing those. And those were like 50, 50 75 words. And I'd have to write about uh, 15 of those a day. And for about three years, I had that job and it was, it was awesome. I loved it. I loved it. Like you learn, uh, so much about economy of information and, and, and how to impart, uh, you know, ideas. Um, and then started making a, started working my way up as a music critic, um, writing about records for the village voice and pitchfork and spin magazine and, you know, whoever would take me. Um, and it was during the midst of that time that I, I'm, met a, a new friend, a guy named Perry Chen, and ended up a couple of years before he'd had the idea for crowdfunding. He had the idea for Kickstarter. And um, and so he shared this idea with me and invited me to be a co-founder with him on it. And uh, and so we, and then about a year later, uh, met another friend, Charles Adler. The three of us um, started trying to make this idea and put it into the world. And, and at the time it was, um, you know, it was like a, the idea of like the people collectively making a choice, making a decision, and that decision only happening if a certain threshold was reached. So like this all or nothing uh, action model. Perry's first idea had been he'd wanted to throw a concert and was going to have to front a lot of money to do it. And he realized, oh, if people could have bought, paid for tickets ahead of time with their credit cards, but only be charged if the show sells out. That way he wouldn't have to make that decision about what could or could not happen. Instead, the public could. And so that, you know, so the three of us started working on that idea and specifically focused on it uh, and how it worked for creative projects. Like we could see from the beginning that this notion of, um, you know, the term crowdfunding didn't exist yet, but like what later came to be called crowdfunding, like we could see that that could work to buy Jenny a prom dress or to pay for Larry's cancer treatment or to pay for someone's tuition. Um, we saw like, we could see the charitable uses, but we were, 
you know, it was very clear to us that the creative, creative projects, um, freeing creative ideas from the requirement to be um, profitable, that that was what was most exciting to us. And we were also certain that the only way you could make uh, a platform that those kinds of people would use, that people like us would use, would be if you reserved it for only creative projects and only, you know, sort of creative people doing creative things, not people not using guilt or need as a way to raise money, but instead creating an environment that's about possibility, about great ideas, about positive energy, people coming together and really trying to create the culture, um, like a, a web culture that would manifest that. And so the, the site launched in 2009. Um, and, you know, and it's, it's still going strong. Uh, this is, this April will be 11 years um, since Kickstarter originally launched, and it's like five billion dollars has changed hands, gone f- uh, gone to creative uh, creators all around the world, and um, yeah, and just con- just continues to do to do its job and, and to do it um, with like the ethos and the values um, that we've always had because the company is a public benefit corporation. There's lots of interesting governance choices we've made as well. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I was the CEO of Kickstarter, um, not Perry was the first CEO. I, uh, was the CEO, I guess, after we had been around for three years, I was the CEO for the next almost four. Um, and then I stepped away about three years ago and spent a year and a half, uh, close to two years writing a book, you know, really wanting to explore the, the ideas that, drove a lot of our thinking in Kickstarter um, and to sort of show the the macro world that the deeper I got into it and the more, um, you know, the longer I was in the CEO role, the more I could see how the structures around us were making a lot of choices for us. And, and, and suddenly I felt like I was just seeing a different level of the matrix than I'd seen before. Um, and so the book is sort of, is following through on those ideas. Um, yeah, and and now I live in Los Angeles with with my family. Got it. When you when you talk about the kind of structures around you making lots of choices, can you give us a, a little bit more detail on on how that plays out? Yeah, well, um, you know, we for the three of us, um, for me and Perry and Charles, you know, we're all people that have creative backgrounds. Like Perry's an artist, I'm a writer. Charles is a designer. Um, we're not technical. We're not business people. Um, and so we always agreed from the beginning that like the, the goal of Kickstarter was not to use it as a vehicle to try to get, to try to enrich ourselves. The, the goal was to make something meaningful and that things always get ruined by money becoming the goal. Like that's where things sell out. And we come from a generation and we independently come from cultures where selling out is like the most shameful thing you can do, where you create something good that people like, and then you commercially you financially exploit it to extricate yourself from your community. Um, and so, you know, we, we really thought about the long-term meaning of the platform being what's important. Um, and so we would talk about things like that. We never, we would never sell the company. We would never IPO, um, that that was like not aligned with what we thought, what the goals of this organization were. Um, but our, our GC, our lawyer would, would point out that, you know, Kickstarter was classified as a for-profit C corporation and that the law tend to, tend to hold that those companies had a legal responsibility to maximize value for their shareholders, which meant m- making whatever the financially advantageous choice was. 
And that is what generally the law and, and just sort of expectations held companies had to do. And there were examples like Ben and Jerry's was going to get sued if they didn't sell out, um, even though their brand is built in their values and that, that we're going to possibly be put at risk by the, by that transaction. Um, and so, you know, and I, and I could see it and I could see it in peer companies, other CEOs that we were friends with who, you know, we, we focused on being profitable early on, on just sort of operating on the black, staying lean, staying small. We didn't raise much money at all, just sort of enough to get us going. And he, we saw other companies raise lots of money and, and saw um, and saw competitors raise lots of money. And then with that, you know, try to get on the hyper growth path uh, and in almost every case, like have a really bad outcome, you know, sort of set these really high expectations that become very hard to meet. You know, when you raise a big VC round, you're basically signing a post-dated check. And every choice is working backwards to fulfilling the expectations of that check, even if it's just like to get to the next check. Um, and so the, the decision making really changes. And so we, you know, we explicitly did not go on those sorts of paths. And we explicitly um, wanted a, a slower growth path, a longer path. But even as you do that, and even as you feel certain of it, theoretically and intellectually, um, you know, you still experience great fear because the rest of the world is going the other way, right? This is like Reed Hoffman writing a book about blitzscaling. Like the goal of a business is to be big as fast as possible. And we are like the un all of that. And in, in general, we felt very confident in that and that it just naturally fit who we are. Um, but the the larger world follows this path. And so this path that the world follows is both, is like the culture, the culture of business, uh, the culture of the world we live in, but also it is structural. As a C corporation, you know what? If if you are under a legal structure that holds certain expectations, like you should meet those expectations. So if you don't want to do those things, you should find a, a legal structure that meets what you are and what you want to be. And so for us, like finding a PBC um, was a way that uh, was really trying to align like the company all the way down to its roots, like its deepest legal roots. And, and I was the CEO when that happened and you, I really could feel a difference, even though the things in our PBC charter were like principles and beliefs and instincts that had always guided us. Having them as a part of a, a legal document for me as a CEO just really changed how I felt about them. Like they, they became things that I didn't just have to keep in mind, but they're things that like my time had to positively contribute to. And, um, and so, you know, so these incentive structures have their, their, they have these magnetic pulls and, um, and we all tend to sort of follow paths of least resistance because, you know, things are hard enough as it is, right? Like no, no, no shame on following the path of least, least resistance, but there are a lot of built-in assumptions that are wrong, that are wrong. And, um, and so the way we tried to do Kickstarter was just with this instinct that the, the industry standards were wrong. Uh, that they that they set too low a bar, and also we tried to operate in a way that was transparent about this stuff because we thought we want we would love to be a a, a model of some kind, you know, not not that we're like that awesome, but just if someone else who say is worried about being an entrepreneur or feels feels ostracized by that world, if they could look at what we're doing and say, hey, I'm going to do the Kickstarter model, I'm I'm going to try that road, then that feels like that felt like a meaningful choice. 
Um, and so there's, yeah, these, these things really, really shape you. And, you know, it's the same way in your job, whatever it is your boss cares most about, that's what you end up caring about, you know, and you might think it's BS. You might not truly believe in it, but these things affect us. And so this is even true when you get to the CEO level and you realize, oh, there's this, there's this other person that I must answer to, you know, the investors, the shareholders. And, And so there's just this, like as you sort of move up the level, you realize uh, what the leverage points are, uh, what the incentives are, and how people are consciously and unconsciously pulled towards certain default kinds of decisions or behaviors. That makes sense. And the, the you talk about PPC, a uh, you know, public benefit corporation. Does does that pull some of those incentives back in line? Like, did you notice that that was changing the the contract you felt with your you know shareholders and uh, investors and employees in the market? Yeah, well, you know, definitely it was, um, you know, when you when we wrote our char- charter, you have to send it out to all your shareholders and they have to vote on it, yes or no. And like, and it was two thirds have to had to vote yes at that point. Um, and uh, and so we were anxious about that, you know, because if someone voted no, they could also they had the right to be bought out. So it's like could be a quite expensive action. Um, and uh, and also like. You know, we had always operated the company this way, but and people had known we'd always been upfront with people about who we were, but still, like to put it on paper, um, felt different. And so there were no one voted against it, and um, and so that was a nice that that felt positive just to know that like there was real alignment. We're all signed on with this being the goal. Like we've always felt this is the goal. We struggled to articulate the goal, but now here it is in like a in a filing cabinet in Delaware. You know, now it's like it's real. <laughs> it's as real as you can get as a filing cabinet in Delaware, and um, and yeah. So I think that it. I think that that helped. Um, you know, I don't know. I, it, it it felt meaningful to me, and also you know we had we had spent a lot of time just taking pride in like being a New York company and not a Silicon Valley company and seeing like the hyper growth Silicon Valley mindset and policies as being often problematic. Um, and so also as a PBC it was a way of like really being clear how different we were. Um, and, and to us that difference felt was like personally important, but we also thought was like important to our audience, um, to creators, especially. For sure. And what what's the, you know, uh, I guess to kind of steel man the other side, like what's the the best thing you could say about the Silicon Valley side that you were lining up against? Like, is it that they get everything wrong or or is this a kind of pros and cons trade off decision? I don't, you know, I, I don't think I can speak to it with any real, any real knowledge. We, we um, you know, I, I only made a handful of trips. Like I never really interacted that much with the Valley. So I'd just be going on like, you know, vague generalizations. Um, but I, I would just say just in general, you know, it's not just Silicon Valley. I think it's just the general business culture that just sort of, that celebrates giant exits, you know, that that is like, that is the ultimate, that is the ultimate success. And I think exits are complicated. You know, I think success is, you've been around for a hundred years. And, and so, you know, just like the kind of, I mean, game, game is a, is an ugly word for this, but like the kind of game we felt we were playing was just so different. Um, and just had such different expectations and rules. And so, you know, we just never wanted to be confused for one for the other, because our, our assumption as like web consumers was that, any company that had raised tons of VC, that is just, it's a ticking clock for them to turn, you know, to exploit their users. 
um, for them to sell data, for them to leverage you into some other thing that you are just like a, you're just a fat goose sitting there waiting. Um, and that, you know, you just don't want to, you don't want to rely on things like that. Um, cause that just makes you more vulnerable. So, you know, you know, we, I don't know, we just sort of, uh, there was kind of at that point, I still felt like there was a strong kind of indie web of tools and services and companies that were, you know, trying to create the alternate versions of all those things. And, you know, DuckDuckGo, some of those are still around. Um, but there was like, it was, you know, it was almost like high school cultural, I think, as, even as much as it was like uh, uh, real practical differences in the businesses. What does high school cultural mean? Well, I just mean like, just like try, just tribalism, tribalism. Like I, you know, just people, people thinking they're one kind of group and someone else is a different kind of group and just ways that that, um, you know, can make, I don't know, just, you would see it in these like stupid New York versus SF blog posts in like 2011, right. You know, about like better texting, just, just tribalism, uh, that just happens, you know, that just happens. Yeah, that I can I can echo that. I was at a, a Silicon Valley company in 2011 and a New York one in 2012, and it it felt like everyone wanted there to be a war. So it's uh, maybe the 2012 uh, company. I bet the 2012 company felt proud of poaching you from a from a SF <laughs> company because in New York in New York in 2012 that was a big deal. That was a big deal. Yeah, that was. There was kind of like a biggie Tupac moment. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, a little little bit silly. I uh, you know w- one of the things. So I. I assume you may be familiar with the Long Now Foundation. Sure. Um, so I, I really like this idea of kind of orienting success towards you know, the long term rather than the than the short term exit. Um, and I think they are sometimes at odds with each other. And when I think about you know a lot of the stuff you've done, I think of it as a as a success story that that kind of harnesses capitalism towards towards some ends. Um, but I also view a lot of what you're saying as kind of a repudiation of uh, of you know some of the classic capitalistic beliefs. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, how do you, how do you kind of, uh, circle that square in your own mind? Like, is capitalism bad? Is it good? Is it neutral? Um, how would you like to see it change? Where are we going wrong? Um, well, I mean, I think that it, uh, I mean, you know, just first off, who the hell am I, who the hell, who the hell am I to say, to have, you know, just thinking about how it's going to be peer reviewed. Like, uh, you know, I'm someone that's experienced it as a, um, you know, as a reader, as a consumer, as a, as an operator. Um, yeah, I think in general it works pretty well. Um, I think that it must be the yen to something else's yang. You know, uh, it's, it's the, it's a yen with the yang being a social structure or a yang being, uh, you know, uh, structures that create competition. Um, uh, so I think, I think in balance, um, it's quite positive. Um, you know, when I look at, you know, with Kickstarter, we, we really felt like, um, you know, when we looked at the creative landscape, if you were a filmmaker trying to make a movie or a musician trying to get an album made, like you were going and pitching a studio or a publisher and they're looking for something that has the potential to be a blockbuster or at least be revenue positive. And so you as a creator are then contorting your idea to try to be whatever is like, has the greatest potential. And suddenly you're like, it's speed meets driving Miss Daisy, you know, and it's like, it was your poetry book at the start of the idea. And so these ways that like these structures just sort of pull us towards these kinds of outcomes. And so for us, that felt incredibly limiting because most ideas and most 
most ideas are just things that people just want to manifest. They just want it to exist. It's just this idea in your head that you just can't let go of. But yet in like the structure of creativity that we lived within, those ideas were only possible if you had disposable income that you could spend on it, or if you had a rich relative um, who would give you money. Uh, and so, you know, we just felt like the the spectrum of good ideas is far broader than the ones that will just produce revenue. Uh, the spectrum of broad ideas includes things that are good because it's cool tech, because someone deserves it from the past work, because, you know, whatever, whatever all the reasons why some, someone may want something to happen. And the goal with Kickstarter was to create a universe and economy where those things could happen without the need of that profit motive. So, you know, if I think about like maybe capitalism as a way to price commodities and distribute commodities as a way to create luxury goods, things like that, that to me, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I can see the purpose those sorts of things serve in society. But yet there's also a lot of space that is left out. And we keep wanting the market and the financial motive, motivations of the market to solve every problem like, hey, let's set it loose on education. Let's set it use on healthcare. Let's let it solve this or that problem. Uh, but I think what it does is it solves for a very narrow slice of a problem. Uh, it forces every possible answer into that narrow slice and just leaves everything outside of it uh, and just doesn't just doesn't allow it to exist. So, you know, to me, the creative world of only profit motives is just like comic book movies and whatever, like video games. Um, the world where we imagine there's a wider spectrum of value on which to do things other than just the growth of capital, then you get, you know, the type of, you get basically what the internet is. Um, and so I think that, I think that capitalism is a, is, yeah, is strong for solving and distributing a certain kind of challenge. But I think that a lot of those kinds of opportunities have been exploited to such a degree. Um, and the system we've, the capitalist system we built is so powerful uh, and so intricate that I think now the most inter interesting opportunities are in the expansion of the spectrum. And, and I think of that as being kind of post-capitalism, sort of applying the tools and models and ways of thinking that we have around financial capital and using them to think about how do you grow other forms of value? How do you, how do you grow public health? How do you grow uh, creative opportunity? How do you grow the sustainability of our practices? Um, and that those things ultimately end up as like new kinds of isms as well. So I think that you know the the world of post capitalism, which I think is going to be the next thirty to fifty years, and honestly, maybe even faster, it's going to happen. I think you get into kind of like a multivariableism, um, and where capitalism and and the the growth of capital is the right framework in which to operate certain modes of our society. But we're going to find that there are other frameworks that are going to be far more effective, and I think a lot of those are are beginning to emerge right now. I, I love the multivariableism point. Um, and sorry, I can't, I can't speak apparently. Um, and one of the things that I think about is like we've, you know, currency is such an easy thing to like tie to. So you end up optimizing for it, right? It's, it's, it's hard, you know, hard dollars and cents, easy to point to. Um, and it creates that incentive pull. Um, what are the what are the currencies that aren't as legible? Like, what are the things that uh, that you know we that might not be dollars and cents, but uh, that we could create? You know, something that was legible or clear that might create that same incentive pull for some of the other directions you you want to see things go towards. Yeah, I mean, just just a few examples. I mean, um, 
say on the dystopian side, why, why not start there? I mean, it, it, you could have the Chinese social credit system, you know, where basically you are uh, boiling down a citizen to like a pitchfork score, you know, some some like rating, and that certain opportunities are made available to them based on that. I mean, that is another kind of like, like I think that the the dominance of currency is as as you said, it's in its how, how legible it is, how easy it is to measure, how universal it is, like. Other forms of value are more contextual. They're more personal. Uh, they're harder to discern. You can't trade them. So they're just like, they're not quite as, they're not useful in the same way. Um, and so I think like these new kinds of currencies are are like new kinds of metrics. So I think like the social credit system, which is very black mirrorish is one example. Uh, on the more utopian side, um, in 2000 or a few years ago, Adele went on tour, Adele, the pop star. And, um, and as a huge star, uh, like a lot of artists, when her tickets to concerts go on sale, they immediately sell out and then get go on secondary ticketing websites. And rather than go along with this, Adele found a startup um, that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to an artist and try to identify, here's the top, whatever, 10, 20 percentile fan, Adele fans in a market. And so she used this algorithm to try to target you know, whoever her biggest fans were try to sell them a, a, a ticket with a cheap face value. They were allowed to resell it just like anybody else. But they thought that by maximizing uh, for this other like loyalty score, that they'd be able to create a very different kind of experience. And in the end, it was like less than 2% of these tickets got resold. Fans saved millions of dollars per show. Um, and Adele was like redistributing a good in a way that she was still operating in the black, but she was optimizing for another value on top of that. So I think that to me is like a new type of transaction transaction that's possible. But we also see like, you know, in the last 10 years, we've seen the rise of calories on like food menus, right? And so that's like a, that's a kind of currency that we're still learning how to interpret um, because we're sort of balancing this, this price and caloric intake at the same time. Um, but I think that we're moving towards things like that. And, and certainly, um, CO2 emissions and, you know, you see on some food packages now, uh, they'll start to show what the f CO2 imprint uh, footprint of that product is. Um, there's groups like Climate Neutral that are trying to do this at large scale. And these are things that this is also new types of currencies and language to learn. So I feel like these things are bubbling up around us. I think that sports and sports getting into data science has like really done a lot to make the public very aware uh, of how these kinds of tools work. Um, and, and I think that this ability to measure and optimize for, um, yeah, uh, other metrics and other outcomes, I, I think it's just going to become more and more prominent. And you even see it on national levels with, uh, Scotland, New Zealand, uh, Ireland and Finland, uh, all pivoting their national governments around to be around well-being, social well-being, and try to define what that is. So to me, this is like, this is the emergent um, sort of wave that people have been wanting to happen for a long time. Um, but I think this is the point maybe where technology has made it practical, right? Where the ability to, to find other measurements, uh, is, is possible because in the past you have like money and then what do you have? What, el what else is there, right? It's, it's hard to find that sort of universalism. But now with the data that's available, the way we're all plugging into the same tools, uh, I think the moment is just happening where uh, we're just going to find this more and more useful and that it won't feel like a, a 
repudiation of capitalism. It will, it's just an evolution. And that's where I think it's post-capitalism is about building values on, building for new values on top of what's already here. Um, and as I imagine, say, what might happen after this quarantine, where I think most small businesses in America will not reopen. Um, I think here in the U.S., we might be in a place where it's only large companies um, and that people are either forced to be an employee or to find some other way of, of producing value, of, create, of producing to the greater good. And I think it might be in these kinds of avenues where that, where that starts to gain steam. Got it. Well, I, I definitely want to cover climate with you and GDP and COVID. Um, so you've opened up a, a, a number of uh, veins I want to go down. Uh, just just to kind of close out on that point, though, before we move on, um, I, I'm, I, I've kind of come across Bentoism, obviously, as, as part of uh, you know, learning more about you and your book and all this. Um, do, can you just give like a quick uh, you know, overview of what Bentoism is uh, and, and how you kind of see that as the, the balance between some of these challenges? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, I was really driven. So I've been talking a lot about how I think value is too narrow. Um, the other way that our viewpoint is too values around self-interest. You know, we, we were a very individualistic world. Um, and I illustrate this using a bento box as a kind of metaphor, um, where you imagine, imagine a bento with four compartments. And um, in the bottom left of those compartments is now me. Now me, what I want to need right now, my now me self-interest, right? This is where most of us operate right now. This is the one part of the world that we have pretty good fidelity of. Now me, what do I see right in front of me? What do I want right now? This is the part of us that wants safety and security that, you know, selfish. Um, if you think about the bottom right, Bento, that's our future me. That's our future me. That's the older, wiser version of yourself. Uh, the salt and pepper version that's 80 years old, standing on the cliffs of time, looking back to you, whispering all the sage advice that gets you to that point, that gets you to your best possible uh, outcome. So that's your future me in the bottom right. And the top left is now us, the people you rely on and who rely on you, your family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, you know, internet buds, whoever that is. And then in the top right is future us. Uh, your children, if you have them, or everyone else's children too. So in this like two by two of self-interest, um, there's four spaces to think about. There's now me, future me, now us, future us. And I believe that every decision that we make has a footprint in every one of those spaces. Like obviously our choices affect our now me, but also who our future self becomes is being shaped all the time by what we do. And also our choices directly impact our the people in our lives and the next generation. But the challenge we have now is that we're functionally blind to everything other than that now me. Those other spaces are harder to see. They're harder to operate in. Um, but they're so important. And, and our, our inability to conceptualize them is why we find, say, climate change so hard to deal with because it's a future us problem. And we keep trying to look, we keep looking for now me solutions that will make us feel better and be more prosperous right now. But that simply is not a, a problem that can be addressed in that kind of way. Um, so what the bento space really reveals is just a map of where you're operating and where you're actually living. Um, and seeing that and being cognizant of what that is creates the opportunity for a phrase I use a lot, but creates an opportunity for self-coherence self-coherence, living and acting in integrity with who you actually are. Like this is, this is being a flow. This is being in a flow state to like the deepest part of your being. And, um, I made a website with a friend, bentoism.org, um, where you can go through this process 
and like learn the model and then be taught how to find what your values are in each bento. So there's a sort of like a self-interrogation of like, what does my now me want? What is my future me when I imagine that older, wiser version of myself? What, what do they tell me is important? And so you can get to like your core values in each of these spaces. Um, and so for me, my values, uh, my now me, like when am I my best? When am I my flow state is now me. It's showing people the matrix is the phrase I came up with. Just connecting ideas, just trying to uh, make the illegible legible for people. Uh, my future me value is about creating harmony. I'm a child of divorce. So like creating harmonies where a lot of my uh, energy went growing up. And then also to not sell out. Don't sell out as a core value for me. Um, my now us values are deep time, deep time with my friends. I have like a core group of friends that I'm hyper present with. Um, but everyone else I'm like really annoyingly out of touch. Um, it's also my shadow shows up there. And then my future us values about building a better matrix, not imagining a world where there aren't these defaults and incentives guiding us, but one where they, uh, operate to our advantage. And so I've articulated these things. And so I make decisions referring to this. Um, and, and it's really changed how I've thought about my time and the kind of choices that I've made. It's, it's a, it's a way I make my weekly to-do list. I sort of provoke myself. I did it this morning, provoke myself. What does my now me want to do this week? What does my future me want me to do this week? What does my now us say is important? What does my future us say is important? And, and it's a way to, to really jar loose and bring out um, what's most important because we get trapped in these now short-term individualistic loops. Like our whole world is trapped in one and, um, and we need help. We need, we need help to break free of that. We need a tool. And so I, I think of the bento, you know, it's, it's a, it's just a metaphor. Um, but I, I think it's, uh, I think it reveals a real, a real truth about, what our lives are about and, and what the impact of our decisions are and, and, you know, whether this be, ends up being the, the language that best makes this clear to people, or there's another kind of language that emerges over time. Um, I believe deeply that this is a, this can be like a linchpin, um, realization. And I, and I think that a lot of the, what we've gone through, in the very recent past is, is revealing this to us in like hyper, hyper real ways. If I can uh, pick up on one thing you said there and go and in, go into the mind of Yancey here, um, the, the kind of future you of having, you know, uh, two goals of creating harmony and not selling out. Yeah. Um, I, the creating harmony thing feels, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm somebody who is a people pleaser. I, I like creating harmony as well. Um, that, that can kind of have an incentive against, you know, uh, willingness to speak truth to power or to hold unpopular opinions or to challenge people's beliefs. Um, uh, but you clearly have a, a you know, uh, you know, you clearly do that. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering, you know, where, where do you kind of build the strength for not selling out in, in, you know, combination with this idea of creating harmony? Yeah. Well, I think it makes me more of a reformer than a bomb thrower, right? Like, I think the, I think those are good things to hold in tension. I mean, I, I, you know, being a, creating harmony yet yeah, it makes you it can make you wary of confrontation it can make you not stand up for what you want like there's there's 
I've learned that there's a there's good and bad to each one of these values. Like I lived for a year feeling so proud of my values and my bento, and then one day I realized they also perfectly describe my weaknesses. If I just looked at it from a different angle, and I just thought, oh shit. That sure. Sucks. That sucks. But also how helpful. How helpful. Um <laughs> but uh but yeah, that that balance of wanting to create harmony and not selling out, I mean, it makes me want to bring other people with me. You know, like when I when I give a talk, like I give talks to very different kinds of audiences and I, and I like speak critically of where we are in certain ways, but yet I'm also like very much an optimist. And, and I imagine in those conversations that I'm, that I imagine every person sitting in the audience is sitting there in their bubble of the things they believe in. And for each one of those people, I'm trying to crawl into the bubble with them and like make eye contact and like touch souls and really be together. And as we talk and as I talk about things that we'll both agree with, that we both think are important, that meet both of our values, by the time our conversation will have ended, their bubble will have moved like seven paces and they won't even have recognized it because we'll just be talking. We'll just be talking about things we both believe in. And, but through that and, and by willing to like talk to someone that way, while also, um, having that kind of energy that, uh, wants to stand up to things that feel unjust. Um, I think that creates the possibility to have a, like a productive kind of conversation or to be a productive kind of leader, right? I mean, you like the Overton window theories would say, okay, we should just all be bomb throwers because if we do that enough, like by the end of this total anarchy will seem like normal, right? That will be, we'll be, we'll find, we'll find comfort in anarchy if we do our Overton windowing right. Um, but I think that that is, I think that, I think that you need, you need people that, uh, will go in and, and, and be in the room and that don't try to preach to the choir and that are looking to translate and, and bridge divides. Um, and, and I think that that is what's so effective. Um, and so, yeah, but I, I love you calling out the tension of those two things because it's very true. It's very true. Well, and, and uh, not to belabor Bentoism, I know we've got uh, limited time here, but um, I, I do encourage folks to, to go view the website and, and, uh, and kind of go through the exercise. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you some props for one of the things that stood out to me um, is that you, you don't trash now me. In fact, the language, I think I'm reading it directly from the site now, uh, is now me is our protector. It wants to be safe and secure. It, it's the, also the part of, uh, part of us that wants pleasure and autonomy. Um, and, uh, and I think that's like, you do a very good job of holding out the positives of that, that just need to be balanced against the other quadrants, which I imagine is hard to do when you want people to think more of the other three. Um, it's easy, right. it's easy to kind of trash the thing you don't want them thinking about. Well, um, but so, I, yeah, I mean, I'm someone, my, now me is my struggle place. Like in a way, the other spots are easier for me than now me. Um, so, so I, you know, but I, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that these things are just all just true. They're just true. And I, I had a, you know, maybe, maybe like a month, I'd come up with the Bentoism idea and I'd spent like a month working on it, thinking about it, just like trying to look at it from every angle. And, um, and I just had this idea of like, let me just do like a, a let's, let's imagine I'm a jihadist or I'm a white nationalist or a neo-Nazi and I do their Bento. And like, uh, you know, I, who knows what it actually said, but like, I, it came out being just saying a lot of like jihadist, neo-Nazi, whatever things like those beliefs came out. And I felt really concerned because I thought, shit, like this should, 
like this, like bentoism should, you know, whatever it should give everyone like great values. Right. And, and instead I realized it's just going to mirror whatever is actually inside of someone. And initially that concerned me, but just with time and reflection, I realized, oh, actually that's, I think that's a really good thing because it means I'm not, this isn't trying to impose anything on anyone. It's just, it's a tool for awareness. And, and, and I think that's something that, um, that everyone needs. And I also, this is where I'm like, I just believe in people enough that I think that if everyone was aware and aware of truly what was going on in them and acting coherently with what those things were, I think the world would be, would be in a great place. Like, I, I think that, uh, a world that runs closer to that kind of uh, that kind of self interest. Maybe it, maybe I'm arguing for some like meta another a different kind of metaphysical invisible hand, the invisible bento, the invisible chopsticks that guide us. Um, but I I do kind of trust trust in people um, to act well when they know themselves. And so yeah, so how how do we know ourselves better? I love that. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, and we don't have to go through the, the whole story of this, but um, what, yeah, what have been the costs of living your values? Like where, where has this been difficult? Um, well, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I'm probably old enough to where I was already doing most of these things. Um, I mean, the first question I remember the first two questions I asked my bento, I like didn't get the answer I wanted, um, which was, and I followed them both times. One was like, it was towards the end of finishing the book and we were supposed to do a, a vacation with a friend and that we did, we do a vacation with that friend every year. Um, and you know, my bento is just like, you cannot do that. Like you have to finish this deadline. Um, but the one that was really interesting was, um, was, you know, one of the ways, um, that I, uh, used to make a living was by doing talks. Um, and, uh, and I, I guess still do, but, uh, was doing talks and would sometimes get asked to do talks for, um, companies that I don't like, like, uh, just values wise, don't, don't, don't agree with. Um, and I'd always said no to those offers always. And it also felt like kind of irrationally angry for even being invited. Um, and I got one of those shortly after coming up with the bento. And so I thought, all right, I should ask my bento the question. And so I asked each voice. So I said, ask my now me, which wants to show people the matrix. I said, all right, now me, should I do this talk for a company I don't like? And the now me said, yeah, that's showing people the matrix, dude. Like, that's what you do. You should do it. So that was a yes. My now us, which wants deep time and focus, uh, said, hey, like an hour and a half to talk to people. Like, that sounds pretty on point. Yeah, sounds good. Let's do it. Check. Uh, my future us, which wants to build a better matrix, says, absolutely. Like, you can't preach to the choir. This is exactly who you need to talk to. That's a check. And then when I got to my future me, uh, which has don't sell out in it, that voice said, no. That voice said, you're just doing this for the money. You're, you're just creating excuse for yourself. And I suddenly found like this voice that had been so angry in the past when I had been invited. And I, for the first time, could recognize it as, oh, this is like a bouncer looking out for my values. My future me is this big dude standing outside blocking things from getting in, from getting in. but that because I can see the whole picture, because I can view this you know, from this sort of bird's eye view, I can tap that bouncer on the shoulder and I could say, no, nah, it's cool. I got this. Like I can, I can, this is fine. This is not going to be an issue. And so suddenly, so I ended up saying yes to that. And, and for like the opposite reasons that I, why I would have said no to it. Um, and it was in that moment that I found what I felt was this idea of 
self-coherence, like really interrogating enough to where you are acting and manifesting yourself and, 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 and like putting that into action. And I think that what's so helpful about the bento and why it like, it's still a daily tool for me, you know, two and a half, three years later, um, is that, you know, it, it, I think it mirrors a lot of like Maslow's hierarchy mirror mirrors, like Freud's subconscious theories. Uh, A lot of those things are, are, have a lot of the same sort of truths baked into them. But I think the bento is, it's a user interface. It's a UI. It's a decision-making metrics uh, matrix. It's a, it's a way to make a to-do list. It's a way to guide your energy. Um, and so, you know, there, there are other tools and, and, and frameworks and mental models to do that. Um, but for me, this one has been, uh, has really been empowering and has shifted how I think about my time, uh, and, and where I invest it. Got it. Well, I, 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 so I'm gonna switch gears a little bit here, um, to make sure that we do cover the, uh, climate change and, and kind of COVID stuff. Um, and you just made a, uh, you know, pretty uh, scary prediction here of most small businesses won't reopen uh, after after this kind of impending pandemic. Um, the the how, how are COVID and climate different and how are we dealing with them? How are we dealing with them differently as a society? Hmm. Well, I guess just ones in ones in slow motion, either ones in fast forward or ones in slow motion. Um, but they seem to be strikingly similar phenomenon. Um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, maybe COVID is a, is a probe being sent out, um, as a warning. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just, there's, there's a visceralness, um, but it, it exposes all the same, all the same flaws, um, you know, all the same ways that, uh, you know, just that our, our, our systems are more brittle, um, than we would like them to be. Um, uh, but I also think that like systems are brittle until they're forced to be resilient. Um, and probably a lot of our systems will find are even more resilient than we initially believed and others will be forced to become that. Um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm involved in a lot of climate stuff and I was on a phone call with the leaders of a prominent climate movement. And, um, and we were talking about how it's, you know, the climate is in some ways, yes, benefiting from like everything slowing down, but also attention is of course going to this pandemic. Um, and yet, you know, according to people who are deep in the climate movement, like more people die from the climate every month than, you know, than do with COVID. Although I think that will probably change. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there, these are ways that these are both challenges that, reveal the ways that we are connected and reveal that reveal the our network reveal our interdependencies which weirdly in the day-to-day flow when we are like so deeply enmeshed in them are just invisible to us we take them for granted and now that those synapses are broken um i feel like we we are more aware of just how precarious each of us are like here i'm here in my house feeling like king of my castle, but I'm like, I hope someone's growing food for us. You know, like I, I'm just assuming, I'm just assuming there's someone growing food for me and like why and what, you know, just it's, it's pretty absurd. It's pretty absurd when I really think about it. Um, and who knows how many of those kinds of assumptions are going to get unraveled, uh, in the course of both this current disaster and, and the longer running one. 
And I, I think that point of kind of it running in fast forward, um, COVID seems to be more tangibly real to the the now me of of more people. Um, and so you are seeing more action or at least more consternation, um, which which may be the catalyst for action. Um, is, is you, know, you said something about a probe there. Is, is, is this uh, are these kind of tools or lessons that we can use to apply to climate change? Um, are you seeing anything on that on that front or am I kind of naively uh, uh, optimistic here? Um, I mean, I think for the right, I mean, the right governments, yes. I mean, the, you know, governments that already have that as a long-term goal, they will make choices while also meeting that goal. And I think that, you know, we might see a huge acceleration towards like the Paris goals um, in, you know, across Europe and in a number of countries, you know, possibly even in China, you start to see a real change. Um, you know, here in the U.S., I don't know. Here in the U.S., um, I think I'm still, I think I've got uh, maybe a decade of pessimism <laughs> uh, before I think maybe the, enough of a bottom where, you know, we're just sort of forced to begin building up again. Um, but we'll we'll see. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's like, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of, super positive things, you know, seeing how people are coming together, seeing the, as I've written about, like this sort of collective consciousness of the web and our, our global brain come alive and really become, be useful. I think all those things are awesome. Um, but I'm also just very aware of, at least here in the U S at the, at the moment of this recording, like this hasn't really started yet, you know, and we're here like criticizing China's early reaction and how they did various things. And we haven't even experienced this yet. Um, and so I think that we're still in the, as big as the change already feels, we're, we are still in this moment in the before period. And, and you know, what, what like the UK government and the Danish government have done where like the Denmark announced that they're putting their economy into a freezer where uh, everything just closes, but the government will guarantee all salaries and everything businesses need. And that whenever this is over, everything will just reopen the way it was. Whatever your job was, you have that job. Uh, and the UK is doing something, you know, in that spirit of that. Um, and so that, like creating that kind of futurist certainty, I think lets people sort of lock in and 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 have a, a goal that they're working towards. And I think those those societies will probably pull through really strong and maybe, you know, much more resilient afterwards. Um, you know, he, he, here in my own country, I you know, I, I, I think that there will be a strong desire to just let the chips fall where they may. And those who survive will have the right to rebuild and reap the rewards. And I, uh, I, I think a significant portion of our power structure will, will find that the best outcome. Got it. Yeah. And, and I assume possibly errantly um, that you spend a lot of time thinking about kind of how to uh, how to make this real for people, how to get their attention, how to get them interested in it, um, how to get them paying attention to it. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've heard a lot of, you know, I, 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 the, I'll call it the callousness of statistics, you know, of, oh, well, worst case, 3% of people die, you know, oh, yeah, and, you know, Spanish flu wasn't, uh, uh, wasn't that bad, right? We recovered. Um, and I think that speaks to, to some of the, the things you're worried about here. Um, and I'm curious, how do you kind of humanize it or get people to pay attention to it without also kind of playing on the fear mongering approach um, and just, you know, uh, overwhelming people who are, uh, who are kind of already struggling. 
you know, I mean, that's where you want, I mean, that's where you want strong leadership that, you know, anticipates the pain that is to come, you know, like I, um, you know, that's a leader that would say, we are all going to lose someone that we cannot imagine losing, right? Like the statistics say, every one of us is going to go through that. And, um, and that is like indescribable, indescribable pain. I mean, more people will die from this most likely than World War II, you know, many times more. And, and so it's like, in, I mean, getting people in that mind, I mean, I don't know how to get in that mindset, right? Like I hear the fact of that, but I don't know what that is. And I, I'm, I'm sure I will emerge from this a different person and we all will. So I think, I don't know, this waiting for it period is, it's important in that we all want to do our social distancing and flatten the curve, but also like, I don't know. I, I just think, I think that there, uh, I fear that there is just real trauma coming. And um, is there, yeah. Is there something you or, or somebody listening to this can do to use that time? Yeah. Not just for social distancing, but also for preparation for, uh, for making trauma more survivable. Well, I mean, the other day I was talking to a friend and, um, just sort of talking to myself in this conversation, I was like, well, what is mo- like, let's imagine this is a two year thing. Let's imagine we're locked away for two years. What's most important to me out of those two years. And instantly answer number one was that like, that my family and I, not just that we're safe, but that we have an amazing time. That this is just like a, the, just like the most richest possible time we could have. And like, and the fact that that was instantly my first answer just like told me a lot about, okay, like I know what I need to prioritize here. Um, and then I, but then I also thought like, what is that future me working towards, right? Like if you're just spending your day reading the news, just trying to keep things in order and, and we're going to, you know, we're all going to spend a lot of energy on that. Um, but let's say you get, let's say you get three hours a day, uh, where you can like direct your mind and energy towards something. Um, I mean, I think that's where you need that future me, future us kind of goal of a larger project. Um, you know, I, I think that we're now like all very bentoist, <laughs> especially if you are with a family because your now us is just very much around you. Um, the now me is like remembering to exercise, remembering to meditate, remembering self-care, just knowing that like this isn't like an airport layover where you can get a Cinnabon and it doesn't count. You know, this is like, this is all real right here. Um, and then that that larger meaning behind the groundhog dayness of just being in your house comes from that future me, future us goal of like, what is, what is that project you want to be contributing to? And so for some people it is like racing to find the cure, racing to, you know, build masks, things like that. For others, it's about sharing, you know, sharing information. Um, you know, once the trauma starts, I don't know what that's going to look like. You know, I, I don't, I don't know what those things are going to be, uh, the ways that we'll be able to contribute. I, I think that, um, for a lot of people, it's just going to be about caring, you know, just caring for their loved ones. Um, and you know, maybe there will be some new sense of like national service that comes out of this. Um, you know, I, I don't know. We'll see. I'll, I'll, it's, it's funny cause these discussions, climate and COVID in general remind me of, I was on the ground in new Orleans, uh, uh, during the kind of aftermath of Katrina. Um, and what I recall is in the moment, yeah, you focused on the sensationalism and in the rear view, that's what we remember. Um, but yeah, when, when you're kind of on the ground or reflecting on what the experience was, uh, it, yeah, it wasn't looting or distancing or, 
masks or guns or, or any of that stuff. Um, those were kind of momentary things you experienced. Um, but you, what you, you know, what I go back to is the, you know, the barbecues and the donations and watching a friend cry and talking to him about it, you know? Um, and so I, I'll echo the community piece. Um, and I wonder, you know, as you're seeing projects, if they're like, you know, optimistic or positive projects that you could direct people towards um, that might be uh, uh, both, you know, getting to a better future us and, uh, you know, enabling the the kind of mental well-being that comes from, uh, you know, living in the future us part of part of the bento, not just the now me. Yeah, I don't I don't know that I have. I mean, I've been a homeschool teacher the past two weeks, so I don't know that I'm like that up on um, what the latest is. But, you know, I really like um, there's a podcast called the Intellectual Explorers Club podcast run by a gentleman named Peter Lindbergh, and he runs these um, philosophical wormholes where he just invites philosophers and different people to share ideas and just has like sessions around that. But he's doing a lot focused around where we are in this moment that I've been sort of paying attention to tuning into. Um, but you know, I, my wife did like a Ryan Heffington dance class on Instagram live yesterday. Like he's a great choreographer, you know, there's like life is happening, right? Life is happening. It's, it's, it's there. It's there. I mean, it's not, it's not not there, but there's also going to be greater trauma and pain and waves of death than the earth has seen in a long, long time that are also happening and are going to happen uh, just more and more. And and we're gonna we're gonna learn what it is to hold to see both those things to hold that. Um, and you know, if you look back at like the early modernists, right? You know, you can you can see how that changed people. And so I, you know, I I don't know what what that emotional, what our emotional state is going to be on the other side, or, you know, this, this, this is, this is, this could be the, the next great depression. This could be the great reset. Right. And, um, and so I think a lot, a lot is unwritten and, and just, it isn't even beginning. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I certainly, I, I fear for us, um, you know, I'm glad my family is at, is safe. You know, we'll do everything to keep them safe and want want the same for everyone else. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's crazy. Well, I I know I've I've got about you know two pages of notes uh, that I did going into this of topics we could have talked about, and I know we're kind of uh, coming up on time here. Um, the one that I feel like I'd be remiss not to ask, um, and then who knows, maybe we can have a, a longer discussion some some other day. Um, is when I think about bentoism, uh, it, it reminds me a bit of, and I think I'm butchering the pronunciation, but uh, ikigai, uh, which is that kind of idea of balance and living in harmony and such. Um, and there seems to be kind of a philosophical change in ikigai uh, that uh, where the the concept of self sacrifice has turned into the concept of self development, um, mm. which seems both somewhat positive uh, as well as I uh, you know. Uh, very indicative of some of the challenges that you're talking about with kind of Western approaches to things. Um, and I'm curious if, if that, you know, opens up a vein of anything you'd, you'd want to comment on or anything you've seen and have had some thoughts on. Yeah, I was, I was very, um, I, I was very inspired by Ikigai. Actually, it was like a couple weeks before I came up with Bentoism that I was reading about Ikigai and, um, and, uh, and it was when, like I was doodling and I like happened to draw this two by two of, of like the bento. And I wrote down, what did I draw a picture of? And I wrote down that it was beyond near term orientation. 
And I realized that that was an acronym for bento. And I flashed back to this Ikigai book and about how it had said that it had mentioned bento boxes and how bento boxes uh, derive from a word meaning convenience in Japanese. And they hold a variety of dishes. So they're like this convenient balance. And that the bento honors um, the Japanese dieting philosophy of harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. And so like it was reading that, that, you know, just gave me that language of like, oh, a bento, a bento, a way of thinking about balance. Um, so there is that larger notion of, of purpose. Uh, but I think that what, what I think is helpful about the bento is, you know, just to tell people to be long-term oriented is hard because like there is the now and the now can be really hard and the now can be really tough to get through. Um, and so I just think, it's just there is a now and there is a future. And sometimes now is more important. Like it's not that there's always the long term. It's always, you know, you should always be selfless. That's not the case. It's the case that sometimes that's the case. And and it's having that awareness. And, you know, people that never act in their now me self-interest are kind of annoying, honestly, as, as friends. It's like a little bit challenging, right? You want someone to stand up for themselves. Like, no, don't say you'll do what I want. Know what you want, right? So like there is this balance we need to have. And, um, and so to me, like just this way of thinking and just sort of this, this aspirational way of being, um, is just trying to acknowledge like both all these parts of ourselves to not deny any of them, you know, for all of us, some are overdeveloped, some are underdeveloped, like no one is truly balanced, right? Like these are things that you're constantly working to maintain this equilibrium and life will throw you out of it. Even once you think you've got it right. And that managing that, living up to that, 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 that is the feeling of success in life. Like that, that is the feeling of I'm doing something that is true to my nature, or I'm doing something that makes me feel compromised. And if you talk about like the deepest joy and the deepest pain and struggle, I think you're talking about the difference between feeling aligned and feeling compromised. That that does seem still quite me oriented, and I'm wondering if there is this gravity that is, you know, maybe inescapable towards individualism. Um, how how are you seeing this kind of drive, you know, more collective decision making, or or how how are people struggling with, you know, re- reducing some of the gravity of, uh, you know, full on individualism? I think it's very cultural. I think it's very cultural. So I think for a for an Asian for a Chinese uh, person, say using the bento. Uh, I think that the orientation might be much more strong to us orientation. Um, you know, I think that I think that all four spaces are universal, um, but I think that depending on the culture you come from, I think you enter from different directions. Like the super religious, you know, you could argue that they're like this future us orientation because they're thinking about the afterlife. Like everything is working backwards from that. So I think right. that there are are different ways in. You and I, as like uh, Americans, um, you know, living in this age, I think are have a extremely high likelihood of being highly individualistic. Um, but I don't think that that is like a an organic truth of the universe. Um, and so I think that maybe we we have we have our starting points that our cultures give us. Right? There's a line. It's like. Uh, it used to be people had to escape their community to find their individualism, and now people have to escape their individualism to find a community. Um, and so just like the the cultural paths have switched, um, but I think that they're all, yeah, they're all, they're all real. They're all alive. They're all there for us. 
They're all happening whether we pay attention to them or not. Got it. And I, I'll, I'll echo my earlier recommendation of uh, going to Bentoism and going Bentoism.org and going through the exercise to try to think about some of these things. Um, and actually, it could be curious if people started publishing some of their, you know, some of their results it might actually help people understand each other a bit more. Um, I'm always cognizant in this uh, that the questions I've asked may not have gone down the path of things you thought were important to say. Um, is there anything that we didn't cover or that we missed that you want to make sure it gets out there? No, this is great. Awesome. Well, Yancy, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And uh, again, looking forward to uh, maybe continuing the conversation uh, and getting to address some of the other issues. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks.